0: The scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. The sermon text will be in 1 Peter 3, but the scripture reading is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him he said Brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the holy spirit And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight And he then he rose and was baptized And taking food He was strengthened. Please turn in your Bibles now to First Peter three, verses eighteen to twenty. First Peter three, verses eighteen to twenty. This is the word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water." Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray for his blessing upon its preaching. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this portion of it. Help us never to take your word for granted, it being so easily available to us now. Help us, O Lord, to cherish this Bible and help us to understand this passage for your glory and for our good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, whose word this is, amen. Let's first take note of the very first part of the first clause, for Christ also suffered. Peter starts with the word for, meaning because, to connect what he writes about Christ's sufferings with the charges and the encouragements he gave to the churches in the previous verses. Peter begins this verse by saying, Christ suffered, though he did only good, so you too must suffer even if you do good, if such is God's will. Suffering, as verse 16 says, for your good behavior in Christ proves your union with Christ. It is only good deeds, therefore, done in Christ that is as his own body in this world. It is only those works that are commended. This is vital to understand. Suffering for doing wrong, that's just justice. Suffering for doing good as an unbeliever is at best merely injustice. You must be a part of the body of Christ for your suffering for doing good to be commended by God. Your good behavior must be done in Christ to meet with divine approval. Those who have their faith in Christ reveal their union with Christ by suffering for doing good. In his own body, Jesus' sufferings are complete. In his own body. In his mystical body, that is, in his spiritual body, he continues to suffer. Consider Acts chapter 9, as we looked at this morning. Paul, then known as Saul of Tarsus, was, in persecuting the church, actually persecuting Jesus Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To afflict the body is to afflict the head. As St. Augustine put it, or we'll just call him Augustine in the OPC. If you stomp my foot, it is my mouth that complains. We are so vitally connected to Christ that in that sense our sufferings are his. So congregation, remember that though Jesus Christ alone suffered once for the remission of your sins, your sufferings display your union with him. And so you share in his afflictions by submitting to suffer for doing good. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So saints suffer if God wills. Suffer at the hands of the wicked. And suffer for him, the righteous one who suffered for you, the unrighteous one. And this brings us to the next part of our text. Jesus's sufferings were those of the righteous for the unrighteous. The unrighteous there in the text is you. You are unrighteous. If you were righteous, You wouldn't need the righteous one to die in your place, to pay the wages of sin on your behalf. Remember the assurance of pardon, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That verse we call the famous double exchange, because our sins are being imputed to Christ in that that verse. And his righteousness is being imputed to us. When Paul writes in that verse, for our sake at the beginning, and we later on in the verse... He's referring to the church, to believers in Christ Jesus. That is, as he says, to those who are in him. Those who are united to Christ by faith are the righteousness of God. By virtue of being in Christ. Think of that for a moment. Think of all the man-made religions out there. Striving to obtain greater and greater degrees of human righteousness by their own ceaseless efforts. It's tragic. It's tragic because the righteousness of God is theirs for the taking if they put on Christ by repentance and faith in Him. The Father made Christ to be sin at Calvary for our sake, for the sake of those united to Him. So if, if you are in Christ by faith, The righteousness of God is imputed to you. It's reckoned to you. And if you are in Christ by faith, your sin is imputed to Christ. Your sins are reckoned as his. This is what Peter means when he writes that the righteous died for the unrighteous. Moving on in the passage, we next see that Christ died for unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. The purpose of Christ's dying for the unrighteous bride was to bring her to God. But why would we need to be brought to God? Aren't we all his creatures already? Why would someone need us to be brought to God? In 1 Timothy 2.5, we are told, For there is one God, and there was one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What is a mediator? To answer that question is to answer the question why would someone need to bring us to God? A mediator is one whose efforts are designed to reunite two estranged, even hostile parties. Any encounter between God, And fallen mankind requires a mediator. First, because sin has caused our holy God to exile mankind from his presence. And second, because sin makes us internally hostile to God. In Romans 8, verse 7, we are told that man is hostile to God, man has fallen. And this fact implies an estrangement between our holy God and fallen mankind. In this capacity as mediator, Jesus Christ leads us to God and propitiates his just wrath against our sin. He can act this role so well by virtue of his work and his death on our behalf and is one who is in himself both God and man. Recall as well what Psalm 68 says, you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train. When Jesus Christ came into this world to rescue his bride, he had first to bind the strong man, that is he had to bind Satan In order to be able to plunder that strong man's house. Fallen humanity is under the reign of the tyrant Satan. First John 5 declares that the whole world is in the grip of the evil one. In the case of his church however, Jesus Christ has delivered us from bondage. But like any great conqueror, the Lord Jesus Christ destroys some of his enemies but takes others of his enemies captive. He places them under his yoke. Brothers and sisters, as you know, ours is the easy yoke, the light and easy yoke of Christ, which alone means true freedom. After, After this epic cosmic raid on the devil's usurped domains, Jesus, we are told by the psalm, ascended on high leading a host of captives in his train and as Peter says in this verse he did it with the purpose of bringing us to God this is what captivity to Christ means as opposed to being led away captive by any other conqueror it means we are freed from the bondage to sin and Satan and it means to be united to Jesus Christ as if one flesh, now and forever, and to rule and reign with him in glory. As Christ suffers with us as our head, so too are we exalted and glorified with him as his own body. We now only await the redemption of our bodies at the consummation of all things, at his return. We see here by what means Jesus Christ effects his great conquest. According to 1 Peter 3.18, he brings us to God by means of his death and resurrection. It's kind of counterintuitive as well, isn't it? He conquers by dying, but also by rising again. Because he died for our sins and rose for our justification, we who are united to Christ by faith are reconciled to the Father. The Father always delights in the Son, and if we are in Christ by faith, he delights in us too. Praise be to our God, both now and forever, for this unspeakable gift. Let's move on to verse 19. The meaning of this verse has been warmly debated for the entire history of the church. It poses a lot of interesting questions. First, what does in which refer to there? Second, who are these spirits? Third, what exactly is this prison? Fourth, what does he meant he went mean? Where did Jesus go? Does this refer to his ascension, as in verse 22, or does it refer to a descent into hell? And finally, what does proclaimed mean? Does it mean proclaim victory, or preach the good news? In the interest of time, I will limit myself merely to refute him, one popular interpretation of this verse. And then present what I think is its correct interpretation. The one interpretation I will take a moment to refute is the one that suggests that this verse refers to demonic spirits who disobeyed God by marrying human women. Those who hold that interpretation believe that Peter here refers to the opening verses of Genesis 6. Let's turn together to Genesis 6 and verses 1 through 8. Genesis 6 and verses 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now obviously it's not our task today to exposit Genesis 6. This is a sermon on 1 Peter 3, not Genesis 6. But it serves the goal of a proper interpretation of 1 Peter 3. If we can offer a better interpretation of Genesis 6 in short order. According to this view, Peter is saying that when Jesus went to the prison where these supposedly offending evil spirits are kept in custody, and there he proclaimed victory over the kingdom of hell. But there are some serious flaws with this interpretation. The first flaw with this interpretation. It doesn't understand that angels are not a procreating race of creatures. They do not and cannot propagate their species like mankind does, and were never intended or created to. Each angel is a unique, original creation, like the stars. And so I must point out that if God did not create angels to marry, or to be given in marriage, which is what our Lord tells us in the New Testament, He would also not endow them with the capacity for reproduction, angels are spiritual creatures, and as such, they have no blood, and hence no DNA. And they cannot beget children by humankind, even if they could beget angel babies of their own kind. The second big problem, right there in the text of Genesis 6. After these sons of God sin with daughters of men, it says that God's Spirit will not strive with offending man forever. That he is flesh. Not that God's Spirit will not strive with offending demonic spirits forever. The point being that throughout this text, we are dealing with the sinfulness of mankind. Not with the sinfulness of of demons, the angelic creation. Sons of God, then, in Genesis 6, refers to believers who are men, to those who are in the covenant community, who are a part, at least, of the visible church. Men who became unequally yoked to the daughters of men. That is, they intermarried with the heathen. Now, this is a common, even ubiquitous, theme throughout our Bible. Especially, though, in the Old Testament, where men of the covenant community, because of the lust of their eyes, intermarry with pagan women. And so endanger the integrity of the covenant community, by which you need to rear a godly seed. Remember that it was the line of physical succession, of natural generation, that the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. What religion the coming child of promise was reared in, whether that of a faithful covenant community of the Lord or a family corrupted by the abomination of the pagans, was of great importance. Recall how Abraham was so careful that Isaac not marry one of the local pagan women. And so he sent for a wife for Isaac from his extended family back east. Recall how careful Isaac was that Jacob take a wife in the same fashion. And how Isaac and Rebekah lamented that their reprobate son Esau had married Canaanite women. Since we're in the Old Testament, turn for a moment with me to Judges. Judges 14. Just look at a few verses from Judges 14. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Whoops. Judges 14, 1 to 3. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get me or get her get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, "Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philist- <coughs> Philistines?" But Samson said to his father, "Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes." Skip down to verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman. She was right. In Samson's eyes. This son of God, Samson, was also led away by his eyes to the daughters of the Philistines and so was unequally yoked first to one and then to another of them. And in the story that leads to the saints destruction. Even unto this day Marrying outside the covenant is forbidden, as Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 6:14, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers." I believe, therefore, that the best interpretation of Genesis six is that covenant members, sons of God, were intermarrying with whoever they desired among the daughters of men, and that therefore, First Peter 3:19 cannot be referring to demons. Who intermarried with human women and to whom Jesus went and preached. I mean, we must note that back in Genesis 6, it says of these sons of God and the daughters of men, it says that they were actually married, not that they simply begat or had children together. So you can imagine the kind of humorous remark one might be tempted to make at that point about such an interpretation of Genesis 6 about domestic life. What was that like between human women? who had married fallen angels? Did she ask the demon husband to take out the garbage, to repair the outhouse, or what have you? You could go there, but I'm not going to because I once held that interpretation myself. So let's return to 1 Peter 3 and verse 19. So who then are these spirits in prison? I believe it has to be the case that the disobedient spirits Peter refers to as being in prison are the disobedient generation of human beings who lived at the time of Noah. In which, then, refers to the spirit at the end of verse 18. So in other words, Jesus by the Holy Spirit preached to the flood generation through Noah. Now at 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, this same author refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. So Noah was a preacher to his generation. He wasn't just a shipbuilder. He was a preacher to his generation. But you might ask, how did Jesus preach through Noah to that generation if they are described here as being in prison? Well, those spirits... Those people of Noah's generation are in prison now as of the writing of Peter's letter. They were destroyed in the flood after rejecting the preaching of Noah and are now, says Peter, in prison, that is, in hell. But doesn't our text say that Jesus went and proclaimed? That is, that he went somewhere and preached. Commentators have spilt a lot of ink on this verb, went. Trying to make it work into their interpretation of this verse. But I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake because of a well-known Hebrew idiom they overlook. In which the verb, to go, is joined with another verb to communicate a single idea. Oftentimes, in the Bible, the verb, to go, is joined up with a more dominant verb to convey a single thought. For just one example among many in the Old Testament in Joshua 23 we read if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them that's in Joshua 23 in that text it is the serving of other gods that is a matter of concern going and serving it's just a Hebrew way of underlining or highlighting the servant. Going in that text has no independent meaning or significance or importance. It's the serving and the bowing down that are, that are the verbs that matter. Or in Matthew chapter 9, go to the New Testament. Matthew nine thirteen, when Jesus tells the Pharisees to go and learn their scriptures. He does not really care whether they have to go to some other place to read their Bibles. He just simply underlines their need to learn by adding the verb to go. And we sometimes talk this way too. We have an American idiom like this. If a policeman is interviewing a husband charged with hitting a man for having insulted his wife, and the husband says, after the guy said that, I hauled off and hit him, What matters is the hitting, not the expression hauled off, which is just an American idiom meant to underline the more important verb it accompanies, here, to hit. If we wanted to interpret his statement, I hauled off and hit him, and tried to give separate meaning to the hauled off part, we would mistakenly interpret it to mean that he must have conveyed something heavy or unwieldy, perhaps by some wheelbarrow, or other conveyance before getting down to the actual hitting. So in answer to the question, where did Christ go? We would have to answer that he didn't actually go anywhere. That's just a Hebrew idiom. And we can feel more confident that that is so, not only for the reasons I've stated, but also because the verb to go in verse 19, in the Greek, meets all of the criteria for what Greek grammarians call an attendant circumstances participle, which the writers in both the Old Testament, uh, Septuagint Old Testament, and the New Testament, they often use this verb when relating this Hebrew idiom. Did so in the Great Commission, when Jesus charges his apostles to go and make disciples. Same idiom, same attendant circumstances participle, There the emphasis is on discipling, not on going. So verse 19 in our text, in the beginning of verse 20, mean that Jesus, by the Spirit, preached to the disobedient generation in the time before the flood, through the preaching of Noah, and whose spirits are now in hell. This takes us into verse 20. And the last section of today's sermon. 1 Peter 3.20 Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. There are two main ideas in this verse that I want us to focus on. God's patience towards a wicked and disobedient generation and a few souls being brought safely through water. Let's examine them in reverse order. The text says Noah's little family was brought safely through water, just eight souls. This could also be translated from the Greek as saved by means of water. The waters of the flood then served a double purpose. The waters of God's judgment served both to destroy the wicked and also to save God's people by saving them from their persecutors. The day of God's visitation back then was both the day of their judgment and, Peter says, it was the day of our deliverance. The waters acted to both deliver the saints from their enemies and simultaneously The same waters were used as God's judgment upon the wicked. But the same pattern occurred, did it not, at the crossing of the Red Sea? The waters of God's judgment both saved God's people and destroyed God's enemies and theirs. The wicked are permitted for a time to to vex and harry the saints as in the days of Noah. Then, as now, God's patience waits. Which brings us to the second point I want to focus on in this verse. In both periods, Peter is telling us, God's patience waits. Comfort yourselves, writes Peter, the many who persecute you now will soon meet with judgment, at which time you too will be vindicated. And delivered. The day of wrath for them will be the day of our deliverance, as it was in the days of Noah. And this is Peter's main point in these three verses we are studying today God's patience with our generation will end someday. Peter calls to mind another generation from long ago to prove this point. So you who hear this message today, you also must repent of your sins and come into the ark of Christ before the great and awful day of the Lord comes, before this present evil age gives way to the age to come. Peter warns in his other letter, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He will come, as our Lord promises like a thief in the night, to call you to account. Do not scoff at his preaching, as they did in Noah's day. If you are not in Christ by faith, if you are not in him on that final day, covered with the blood of the Lamb, and mantled with the righteousness of Christ. Then like that generation long ago, you too will be consumed by the white hot wrath of God against sin. Instead come into the ark while the door of repentance and faith remains. This ark that alone can save you from the tidal waves of the wrath of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for extending to us this offer of reconciliation with you through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who receives the sins of his people upon himself and suffered the penalty of death. He suffered the wages of sin, which is death, on behalf of those who trust in him. Help us, O Lord, to put our faith in him if we have not yet done so. Help us, O Lord, to have a stronger faith, ever mindful of your goodness to us through him. If we have a a, a true faith that is nevertheless weak. And help us to share the good news of your salvation in Christ with a lost and dying generation as Noah faithfully did for his. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.